Well, if you'll open up your Bibles uh, to the second to last letter of the Bible, we're in Jude again. We're starting in verse 8, but since it's a short letter, I will start with verse 1. If you're a visitor, we'll kind of catch up a little bit. Um, so, and uh, I'm going to do this to you again, now that you're all comfortable. So while we read, we stand. So if you'll be standing, stand up with me. We'll read Jude, verses 1 through 13. You guys getting your exercise tonight. So Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves." Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we have in this, this letter uh, from you through Jude to both the early Christians as well as to us now, some very strong language about a very important, critical, eternal topic. Lord, may we hear the force of these words. May we uh, be so impacted that we would, we would so desire to grow in the knowledge of your truth and to grow in our commitment to your truth, to grow in our conviction to stand up and guard the truth. So, Lord, as we go through this letter, uh, just grow our hearts, strengthen us, give us the courage we need to be the people who protect your truth, to pass it on to the next generation. And, Lord, at the same time, too, to consider personally 
uh, how we've been either led astray or we just, we, we've been in error in the past, but God used these words to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives. God, we want to be a church that shines brightly for you, that we can only shine with the gospel. That's all we got. That's the best thing in the whole world and all the universe. So God, we just pray for your blessing now. Open our eyes, open our hearts, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, we just uh, heard some pretty strong language from Jude. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's supposed to be because the topic is that important. Before I launch into that, though, I, I think the, the atmosphere of the letter is something that uh, has impacted me as I continue to study it. We're in a culture that's very much, um, it's, it's sanitized from, from war, from harsh conflict. Um, when I lived in Brazil as a junior hire, the government there, was, it was a dictatorship. The police didn't, you know, weren't driving around nice little cars. They were in, in military jeeps and they had machine guns. And uh, so it was very militaristic. And I've been to countries where I've had my passport taken um, and we weren't sure if we were going to get out of the country. And uh, I've been to Israel when uh, it was the day that uh, uh, Arafat, was when he died, his body was being flown back to um, Ramallah, and they flew right over our bus, and there was a lot of chaos in Israel at the time. And all those different scenes uh, are what actually people in most of the world live around all the time, that sense of danger, sense of war, uh, you're on the edge. And, um, and this, so when we hear this language and we hear these words, it, it kind of, it, in our culture, it shocks us a little bit because we are, we're in a very, we're in, praise God, we're in a society like this where there is order and there is, uh, there are laws, the rule of law to, to uh, a large degree. Um, but we need to hear this and we need to um, take it to heart so that we have a, a stronger convictions and where we are ready to go to war. And I don't mean war with people, but we're going to war in the, against the, in the spiritual realm. Not that we have authority except for what the Lord has given us in the gospel, but we have to understand, folks, we're at war. We are at war. We're at war. So when we hear this language, we have to understand the, the force of, of the passion that Jude is writing with. Because we don't see that, it, we, we sanitize the letter, and we miss the impact that he's trying to drive home to Christians then and to us now, here in America, okay? And I've said this before, this is a letter, uh, it uses harsh language, but it doesn't become carte blanche for us to become angry, to become vindictive, to become in your face yelling at people. No, we're still called to be people who are, who are exhibited by humility and grace, but it doesn't mean we, we uh, lack conviction, right? It doesn't mean we have to compromise on the truth. So that's just, that, that impacted me as reading this letter in the language and just to hear the strength of what he's saying. And to, I wanted to it kind of set the stage with that as we start digging into it, to not miss that and realize that's what's called for here. We are, we are called to be soldiers in, in, the, in the Lord's army, right? But it's spiritual warfare that we are, uh, we're involved in, and it's, we're on a rescue mission as well. So let's, uh, let's start digging in. I'm going to, for those of your visitors, I'm just going to briefly cover verses uh, 1 through 7 to kind of catch you up. But first of all, in the first two verses, we have Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing to Christians, and he's, in the first couple of verses, just encouraging them. He's, you know, he he's, gives them his greeting, and he, he calls them called, 
beloved and kept. And we spent some time on those three words, but three just strong, just great encouraging words for believers. Called of God to be saved and to be his own. Beloved of God. Beloved of God. And kept by God. And what God keeps, he does not lose. Amen? So he's writing to these true followers of Christ, and he, he prays for just the blessing of peace and, 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 and love and, and be multiplied, multiplied overflowing to them. But then he jumps into the reason for his letter. We see that in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, I wanted to write to you about our salvation to encourage you to talk about this great salvation we have through Jesus Christ, the faith. But whether he got some report, we don't know why. He said, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing, calling out to you, to, to contend earnestly, diligently, hard for the faith, to war for the faith, the, the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. What we have in Scripture is enough. He says you have to contend for it. Why? There's false teachers. Peter, Jesus, Paul all warned, hey, false teachers will come from within your, from within your own bodies. And Jude's saying, hey, they're here. They're here. We got to notice them. We have to point them out. We have to call them out. We have to condemn them, reject them, call them to repentance and not be led astray by them. So that's the, really the heart of his letter. Contend for the faith that's, and contend for the faith against false teachers. So in verses 5 through uh, 16, it's the largest chunk of the letter, and he spends all of his time on what these, who these false teachers are. So in 5 through 7, uh, we saw uh, last Sunday, is that he warns, he warns about these false teachers, and, and, and he looks backwards. He, he used three significant examples of, of people who had rebelled against God's clear direction. He gave the example of the Jews in the wilderness who rebelled against God, right? The apostate Jews. Apostate means to defect from the faith, to know the truth and turn your back on it. These apostate Jews knew God's promises. He had just done these amazing plagues, delivered them from Egypt. They did nothing except follow. And then all through, and then coming up to Kadesh Barnea, they're ready to go into the promised land and they doubt his power and his promises. And they rebel against him. They're the post, they, they, they failed. And they were condemned by God for it. A severe condemnation. A whole generation perished in the wilderness. We talked about that. Looking at the numbers of the army, the men of fighting age, there's over 600,000. And so if you say there's equal women, a uh, number of women, that means 1.2 million aged 20 and older at the time. He said that generation... 20 and older at the time of their rebellion was going to perish in the wilderness. 1.2 million at least died in the wilderness because they didn't obey God. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe in him and his power, his promises, and his protection. That was the first example. The second one were these angels. Again, we're looking in verse 6 now. These angels who had rebelled against God's, God's call on them, they're, they're, they had a proper uh, place in the heavens where they were to serve God. They had a proper uh, uh, mission to do. They were to serve God, and they left that. And we're not sure what the situation was. We, we have some hints. Maybe it was Ezekiel 28, or maybe it was Genesis 6. We talked about that. But the main point is they knew God's clear direction for them, and they rebelled 
They rejected his authority, and they, they, were, they stepped out, and he punished them for it. And certain angels are kept in gloomy, utter darkness in a special prison, according to 2 Peter. So that's the second one. And the third one was the apostate uh, Gentiles, right? It was the, he gave the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and they say, well, how did they reject God's clear warning to them? Well, they had the angels who warned, but the clear warning is that instinctively, man knows what is natural when it comes to sex. Okay, and here we go. We're in, we talk about our culture being controversial and touchy. That subject, it's about homosexual sex. They were condemned for the rebellion against God when it came to that. And they were judged severely. So those are the first three examples that Jude brings up to the Christians to say, hey, these false teachers are in line. They're just like them. They're, they're like their predecessors. And now in verse 8, he shifts into saying, here's what they are doing now, these, these false teachers. And he starts shifting in to give them, to give, I call it following their poisonous path. They're on a poisonous path because what does poison do to you? It kills you, you take it in, and that's what they have to offer, these false teachers. So he says, and I'll, I'll just hop right into this, into uh, verses 8 through 13 now, but verse 8 is about their, these false teachers, the character of these false teachers. They follow the same poisonous path as the predecessors, and then he gives an illustration of their presumptuous pride in verses 9 and 10, and then he gives a whole list of, of condemnation on these false teachers in verses 11 through 13. So that's kind of where we're headed tonight. I don't think we'll get past verse 11, all right? So I might have to cut it off there, otherwise we'll go way too long. So verse 8, all right? Yet in like manner, these people also. So he's saying that they're following the same pattern as the, as the ones mentioned in verses 5 through 7. In the rebellion against God, twisting God's word and ways, and legitimizing unrestrained sensuality. So he says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. And that's a big hint right away. They're departing from the revealed word of God. Their, their dreams are their source of authority, their false authority. They, they wander, they are, they're dreaming, so they become blind to the truth. Their, their dreams are their revelation, and that becomes the source of, well, because this is what I heard, here's what we can do now. And then they start injecting all this false teaching that, that backs up their lifestyles. It's not, it's not based on the Word of God. They reject the once-for-all delivered faith. They twist it. They distort it. They distort this, the body of apostolic teaching, the truth of the gospel, the new covenant life of righteousness. They're blind to the truth because they pay attention to these dreams. They wander from the word, the clear revelation of God's will and ways, where they find their justification for their claims to authority and their immoral lifestyles that flow from it. And again, once you start, you depart from the Word, it's easy to come up with reasons to live like that. Because the Word of God is called the Word of Righteousness in Psalm 19, and it's that, that which produces righteousness. Jesus says, sanctify them in, your, in, your, in the truth, your Word is the truth, right? So when you're in the Word, it leads you to righteousness. It does not lead you to immorality. 
You know, because licentious or immoral living was a clear and obvious sign of a false teacher. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You can go on, but you get the point. And licentious living was clearly warned against. He goes on in, in verse 20, he says, uh, and he said, what comes out of a person, in Mark 7, I'm sorry, Mark 7, 20 through 23, he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. How's that for a list? And I read it fast. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. These false teachers, their actions, this list is a good sampling, their actions showed what kind of hearts they had. Hearts not bent on teaching and sticking to the word, but people who were looking for for their own revelations as their source of authority, and because of that, their lives were defiling them. Paul, and I mentioned this last week, Paul dealt with that exact issue. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, and then verse 15, he's asking, does the new covenant of grace free you up to live as you please? The big answer is no, is what he says in Romans 6. We are free from the burden of the law as a means of righteousness, but we aren't free from the call to holiness, are we? We're called to be holy as I am holy. That's what the word calls us to. We are to pursue holiness, practice godliness, walk in the light as he is in the light, walking in newness of life, not the old, ugly, fleshless ways of living as the old man, the dead man. And and yet that's what these teachers were teaching. It's a clear sign they were false teachers. They had wandered from the truth because the word of God is righteous and produces righteousness. Well, they're, so they're, they're not only, de, de, you know, departing from the word, but they're, they're people of depraved character. And he says they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is the threefold characterization of their error, their apostasy that flow from their teaching, revealing their hearts. Defile, and that word has to do with uh, contamination. It's to cause to be morally filthy. And that, that its root is a sexual morality already referred to in verse 4. Their practice of life is unholiness, giving over to unrestrained lusts of the flesh. They reject authority. What did verse 4 say? Who did they deny? Their master and Lord Jesus Christ. They want nothing to do with his authority. They want to be their own authority. Right? Again, if you see a, an elder pastor and they're uh, arrogant and they want to be the man and no one can tell them what to do, they should not be your pastor, right? They're supposed to, we're supposed to be humble servants, right? Willing to get on our knees. These men were not. They reject authority. They had arrogant pride. They had a pride of position, rejecting Christ's lordship over them, claiming their own. No earthly submission for these men. It says they blaspheme the glorious ones. That word blasphemy, it just, it's, it's a picture of their ignorant and arrogance in their spiritual estimation of self. And especially when it comes to the, uh, the understanding of the angelic realm. We are not given a lot of information in Scripture about the angelic realm. We're given hints. But these men evidently were quick 
to claim authority in that realm based on what little we see in this. We're given hints in Jude's letter here. Second Peter said the same thing in 2.10. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So in their practice of spiritual authority, they lack fear and trembling. Appropriate humility. They, de- they, they depend on their own authority and not on God's. And we're going to see that played out in, the very, in this very next uh, two verses on the illustration that, that Jude gives uh, about what is appropriate and how these false teachers uh, totally presumptuously claim uh, power here. And that's what we lead into verses 9 and 10. It, this is the illustration of their presumptuous pride. So he says, but when the archangel Michael... And by the way, how many archangels are mentioned in Scripture? One. Just one. We, we think, uh, where do we get Gabriel from? Yeah, he's, we just know he's an angel. So we only know of one archangel in Scripture that's, that's named. We don't know how many there are, and this, it's Michael. But when the, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, how many of you just are shaking your head? One, where is that in the Bible? And two, what in the world is going on here? Right? This is very foreign to us, especially in the Western world. But when you look in Scripture, we have the death of Moses. He died in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And here's what Scripture says. Moses died. It doesn't say about any, any struggle here. So where where are we getting this from? Well, scholars believe he's quoting from what's called the Assumption of Moses. It's a a Jewish pseudepigraphal work. And it was, again, it was a work familiar to first century Jews. They they had a a body of literature during the intertestamental periods. The end of the Old Testament, about the 400s through the the, uh, appearance of John the Baptist. Those 400 years is called the intertestamental period. And there was a body of Jewish literature um, that, that were respected by the Jews, but not considered scripture, all right? So he's, he's referred uh, to this, the assumption of Moses. We're going to see next week, right, in verses 14 and 15, that he refers to First Enoch, which is another book in Jewish literature, okay? So he's quoting from them. Do we have any other quotes from books in, in the Bible where the author is quoting a non-canonical, non-inspired work. What is Mark uh, quote? Oh, he, that, the, the, the ending, the very ending you're talking about? Yeah, that's the disputed ending. I don't know if that would be uh, him quoting. That was probably inserted by scribes later. But didn't Paul? Yeah, this is different. Yeah, he's quoting from an established body of work that people knew who it was or knew what it was. How about Paul? Didn't he quote uh, even one of your own poets? You know, and then he quotes this as in Acts chapter 17. So we have different quotes with a quote from books that are not in the Bible. Does that mean those books are inspired? The answer is no, okay? So when you hear about new books being, oh, they just found the, the gospel of Thomas, the lost gospel. Don't buy it hook, line, and sinker, okay? For instance, that one was from the mid-100s. The early church recognized, no, that was not from Thomas. They knew about it and rejected it right away. Okay, it was not from the Apostle Thomas. It was from the, the, one of the Gnostics, and it was 
false. It was rejected without even much thought given to it. All right? So, but him quoting from another work, it doesn't make that work inspired. Remember, because the writer is the one who is inspired. So he's seeing that. He's using that as an example. Back to the story, all right? He's quoting from something to give us an illustration, and we're given insight into the angelic realm, okay? So we have two characters. We have Michael the archangel, and he's come for the body of Moses. I don't know about the interaction that goes on between angels and demons or devil about the bodies, but evidently something happened here, okay? What was Michael's attitude towards the devil, the chief, one of the chief angels serving the Lord, contending with Satan over the body of Moses, what did he do? The Lord rebuke you. He didn't slander or defame him. Didn't, he didn't pronounce judgment. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So his position was of humble submission to the Lord. I serve the Lord. He's my authority. That's who you, Satan, have to contend with. So that's the positive example of proper, uh, proper humility when it comes to the glorious ones, to the angelic realms, because that's what he's saying. These false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones, okay? So the first example he shows is how they interact with each other, fallen angel and chief angel, okay? There's even there, the, the, the good guy, Michael the archangel, not his authority, it's God's authority. The Lord rebuke you. Then he goes into verse 10 and gives the opposite. These false teachers, this is a contrast, they're arrogant and they're ignorant. They have an independent, a self-independence. But these people, these false teachers he's been talking about, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, let's go through this kind of word by word here. <laughs> Jude pulls no punches, all right? It, it, he just highlights that they have an elevated view of self, their pride of position. I've got authority because of who I am. Blaspheme all that they do not understand. They have no idea about the reality of the spiritual realm. They have an irreverent, casual, flippant attitude, and they lack understanding about this realm at all. That's what he means by saying they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And he says that they are destroyed by all that they understand instinctively, like unreasoning animals. So rather than having God's favor and blessing, they're headed towards destruction and condemnation. These false teachers are like unreasoning animals. That word unreasoning is a logikos. Logikos, you might remember logos, you might hear that word. We talked about it during the church series. That just means study of or word about. Ah means the opposite of, not. Seeing he's basically, he's calling them, they don't know what they're talking about at all. Unreasoning. They have, they have no rational thought. They're irrational. They're stupid is what he's saying. They understand instinctively, but not according to spiritual, rather the opposite. Their instinct is fleshly, worldly, not spiritual. Again, there's a hint, and I was reading one commentary that, that notes that, that there might be a sexual idea that it's really when it says like unreasoning animals, talking about animals in heat. Because he's been talking about these false teachers who they, they promote licentiousness, sexual immorality. So that's a, a 
kind of flavors this, that, that they are acting like unreasoning animals who are in heat. And when the animal's in heat, they don't control themselves very well, do they? They're, they're out of control. They're just, they're, their hormones are going crazy. And that's the picture here he's saying of these false teachers. It's very graphic, strong language, and it's a slap in their face. And, and the Christians are receiving this letter, and they're, they're supposed to feel that and recognize it. Because here's the deal. These are not false teachers who are outside their churches. They are false teachers within their churches. These are the infiltrators of verse 4. That means they have been within the body, and if they're teachers, they have positions, some positions of a leadership. So imagine, everyone look around for a moment. Imagine people that you've seen in church who are being called this. People that you give deference to because of their position. And he's saying, look, doesn't matter what their position is. If they're teaching against the Word of God and living unholy lives and promoting that, leading people astray, he's saying, wake up. He's saying, wake up, folks. Wake up. They're amongst you. See them for what they are, like unreason. They're out of control. So that's what he said in verses 9 and 10. Now, jumping down into verse 11, 11, verses 11 through 13, he's saying that they received the same kind of condemnation that's already been meted out on the, on the predecessors. Woe to them, verse 11. That's the prophetic oracle of doom. He's pronouncing doom on them. Woe! For they walked in the way of Cain, illustration number one. Abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, illustration number two, and perished in Korah's rebellion, illustration number three. I told you that this is a walk through the Old Testament. We've been all over the Old Testament. We have some more ahead of us. So first of all, we're looking at Cain's example. So let's uh, just go to Genesis chapter four. And we're gonna, I'm going to only read a few verses out of that. Genesis chapter four, first book of the Bible. And he takes us all the way back to show us Something about these false teachers, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That was an expression of saying that he was, he was sad and he was down. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, obey what I've told you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He's given him a warning, careful, you know, don't let this sin overtake you and let you be controlled by it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. We're going to see if Cain listened. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? He said, Cain, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And he goes on to spell out more of his judgment. So we have the story of Cain, and he's saying, they walk in the way of Cain. All right. So what is, what is Cain's way? What's his example? It's one of rebellion, immorality. Now, not sexual immorality, but what was, what was the immorality that he showed? He murdered. That's pretty strong immorality. And, and he rejected God's word, and he's condemned for it. All right. So walk, again, walk in, to walk in the way of Cain, is to, it's a way of life. That's a picture of, of, of a pathway. Matter of fact, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, right? It's the idea of a pathway. It's a general way of life. In this passage here, it's, it's very sinister to say, walked in the way of Cain. It's definitely a path that walks away from the Lord of alienation and exile and separation from God. Because what does he do? He rejects God's direction. We find out from Hebrews that uh, Hebrews 4 We know that Abel and Cain, that they had directions on how God wanted his worship done. So it wasn't because, you know, God was being just mean to him because he didn't like Cain. He had given them instructions. Here's what Hebrews 11.4 says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks." God had given them directions, and and Abel offered it in faith. Cain didn't. Cain, was his offering was rejected. His religious duty, the way that he wanted to to do this offering, was what he wanted to do, and not what God wanted for him. He rejected God's direction, and then God, and we see the mercy of God, don't we? Though he rejected the offering, what did God do? He went to Cain. Hey, Cain, you're down. I see that. You know, if you do the right thing, things will be fine. Just, just do, do the offering the way you're supposed to. And then he says, but be careful. Don't let sin is right at your doorway. It wants to, it wants to pounce on you and overtake you and, over, and control you. Fight against it. And he doesn't, right? So he rejected God's direction, his, his directions for worship, and then he rejected his warning. And then he, he, became, he rejected God's authority over life. Right? Who's the, who's the giver and taker of life? The Lord is. And we have in the first family, we have a murderer because he wanted that authority. So he, the, he says that these, these uh, false teachers walk in the same way. They're rebellious. They want to be their own authority. They're immoral. And we see that Cain was judged by God severely. He, he, was, he, was, he was out of the presence of God. He was, he was no longer allowed. He had to move further away. He went to the land of, of Nod. And he, he was marked for life. And in a, in a picture of, of truly of rejecting God and, and, and just, uh, just evil. It's what he is. So that's the first thing. He says they walked in the way of Cain, and then it says they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam. All right, now we have to go back to another passage of Scripture. But there's four chapters that deal with it, so we won't read all the chapters. I'm going to tell you the story, but I want you to read it on your own. So Numbers 22 through 25 is the passage of Scripture where Balaam is brought up. 
And here we find out Balaam, he's characterized by greed, evil intent, circumventing God's authority, deceit, and sexual immorality. All right? So we, here's the story. And uh, so in, what, ha, what has happened is that the Jews have spent 38 years in the wilderness wandering. And they're starting to move up towards the eastern side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. They're headed that direction. And they're starting to, uh, as they're moving several million people, they're, they're, come, they're going through kingdoms. And they're starting to have wars. And so there's, there's these kingdoms who see them coming. All right, we've got the Moabites and the Midianites who, who see these Jews coming. And the king of Moab is Balak. Great name. Balak talks to the Midianites. Hey, they're coming. We're going to be overwhelmed. And we need to do something about it. What's weird is that, although Balak didn't know this, since Balak of Moab, they were relatives of the Jews. The Moabites were descendants of Lot. You guys all know who Lot is? Abraham's nephew. So God actually told Moses and the Jews, you can't, you, sir, don't just go around the Moabites. Well, Balak didn't know that. So he makes counsel with the Midianites. He says, hey, we got to get some help. So they sent all the way up to the northern part of Syria. They sent for Balaam, Balaam the prophet. All right, so evidently he had a reputation at that time. There's actually archaeological proof that they found in the Transjordan of this Balaam. So he was well known, kind of interesting. Anyways, they send for him and they, they say, hey, we want you, to, well, here's all this money, tons of money, and we want you to come and pronounce a curse on them because evidently he had a reputation where his curses worked. So they, they send a, a, an envoy up to him, and, and he, he says, well, I'll, I'll go talk to the Lord. So he knew about who the Lord was. And then when the Lord responds to him, and this is where we start getting a hint, this is not a, a true follower of God. He, was, he, was a, you know, he knew about the different gods of the different nations. And it says that God, Elohim, that's our hint. He doesn't say the Lord Yahweh responded to. It says Elohim responded to him, saying, hey, don't take their money. Don't curse these people. They're my people. And so he, he, said, he told that to the envoy. Good for him. He, he heeded the warning. And, and so they send a second envoy because they're really afraid, and they send even more money. And this time, the Lord says, well, you can go with them, but you just have to say what I tell you to say. Do not curse these people. So as we're reading this story, and it was just a fun story, I love the Old Testament because you have lots of stories that just are, are just bizarre and fun. But as he's traveling down, well, they are. They're great. They're just stories, epic stories. So, the, so he's, he's going down from northern Syria down to uh, the eastern side of the Jordan River to down to the, the Moabite, where the Moabites and Midianites live, uh, east of the Dead Sea. And on his way, he, uh, his, he's riding his favorite donkey. And the donkey is right, and evidently at this point, the Lord, we don't know, it doesn't say anything except that we see that the angel of the Lord shows up and is blocking the donkey, and the donkey stops. It says that the Lord was angry now with Balaam, and that's our hint that he, he really had bad intentions, and we find out later he was motivated by greed. The Lord you know, says, you can't pronounce a curse. Well, for him to get all this money that they offered him, he had to pronounce a curse, Right? So his heart had changed. God knew his heart. God, you can't hide things from God. You can't run away from God, right, Jonah? So anyway, so he's, walking, he's, he's riding his donkey, and an angel of the Lord that he can't see shows up, but the donkey can see it. And the donkey just stops. 
And so he beats his donkey to get it to go forward, and, and the angel of the Lord moves over, the donkey moves over, and won't go any, go any further, and then he beats the donkey, and the donkey just, will get, he just gives up and he just sits down. The donkey just sits down, so the prophet Balaam gets up and starts beating it, and, and then the, the Lord used the donkey and had the donkey speak. says, hey, if you go any further, that guy right there, the angel of the Lord is going to kill you. And so he has a conversation with the angel of the Lord. This is one of those where we see the angel of the Lord many times in the Old Testament. You can, you can bank on it. That's Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So the angel of the Lord says, uh, you're going down for the wrong motives. Don't you dare say anything that I don't let you say. All right? So he, he does continue down. And uh, so he gets there. And we see that he pronounces basically blessing <laughs> over the Jews. And Balaam's like, what's going on? I've given you all this money. So that's kind of where the story ends, is that he can't pronounce curse on them. But we find out later that Balaam, sneaky Balaam, his heart is revealed, okay? It, it, we see it in from uh, uh, Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. We, we have this. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab... These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, that was the god of the Moabites, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He was the one, Balaam was the one who took counsel, he took counsel with both the Moabites and the Midianites, saying, I can't curse them, but here's something you can do. He's the one who gave them the idea to, hey, send in some of your women and, get, and have them seduce the men of Israel, okay? And they, were to, and they caused, and that's exactly what happened. We see many men. It says that because of the, of, of, of the Jews following the lead and, and, and having sex with these women and, and offering sacrifices, that 24,000 Israelites got killed with a plague. Because they went after foreign gods. So Balaam, because of his greed, led people astray and there were severe consequences. And he himself was killed later, as recorded in Joshua. And what is, what is Jude giving this as an example of? If you follow these false teachers, you're going to be following false gods and you're going to come under the judgment of God. And they themselves are under the judgment of God. You follow them, it'll lead, you know, don't, look at their lives, the sexual immorality, rebellion, claiming their own authority, departing from God's ways and God's words, not heeding the warnings. Pay attention, folks. Pay attention to what these men are. And, and I'm saying Jude is bringing these up to the Christians then, but we need to hear this now. If they're false teachers, we've got to call them out for what they are. They walk in the way of Cain. They, they have greed, they have greedy hearts that will lead to all sorts of uh, error, immorality, just like Balaam. And then the final example he gives is Korah. And again, we have to jump backwards in the, in the Old Testament, but in the, we stay in the book of Numbers, and now we're in Numbers 16. And from Korah's example, we have a, a man who presumed authority not given to him, and he fought against God's appointed leadership. So Korah, from the tribe of Levi, in number 16, he was jealous of Moses and Aaron. 
And they confronted them, basically saying, who do you think you are to have authority over all of us? We're all God's people, especially the Levites. We're all priests. Why do you have authority and why don't we? So they basically led a, a rebellion and 250 leaders, it says, joined with them. All right, so Moses says, okay, all right, so let's, let's let the Lord decide who's supposed to lead. So Moses was trusting God. He was humble. He didn't come after him. And he just said, okay, we'll let the Lord decide. So they, they, they have the camp divide, you know, says, hey, all of these are with Korah. Go ahead and stand over there. But if you're not with Korah, you better move away. And now the Lord will show us who's the one who's truly the one of God. Who's, who's the, who are the appropriate leaders according to what God says? <laughs> well, I'm just, I'll read the summary from Psalms 106, 16 to 18. It says, When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Those were the two fellow conspirators with, along with Korah. And their families, those three men and their families were swallowed up. And then fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. The 250 men who, who joined in the rebellion, these leaders, they were all consumed by fire. Okay, this is something that you don't even see in Indiana Jones, right? This is, this is, this is not sci-fi, this is real. And it says that there were actually 14,700 the next day that died because they were grumbling about that because they were kind of on the side of, the, of these other men, Korah and, and that, that group. 14,700 died. Okay, this is why, by the way, we need to know the Old Testament. These stories teach us about God. What does God think about His holiness? What does God think about the worship that's appropriate, the worship He decides? Is it up to us to decide? It's up to Him. And what He says in His Word, we have to abide by. False teachers say, oh, that's okay for, but for then, but here, let me tell you what, here's what the Lord revealed to me, relying on their dreams. And then they come up with whatever they come up with. It's usually for greed, they want to gain from their position. They want prestige. They want power. They want authority. They make bold claims. They have their followers. And usually sexual immorality is in there somewhere. And we don't have to point to many cults to give you examples, right? The 60s and 70s were rife with them. My mom was involved with one when I was a little kid. It's just gross. It's gross immorality that flows when you depart from the word of God. And I will end with those three examples, and we'll continue the next time I preach. But there's three things to, I want to I really challenge you for. The so what. First of all, be discerning. The way you gain discernment, get into the Word and obey it, according to Hebrews chapter 5. Read it, obey it, what you obey, God will help you grow as you read the Word and be in it consistently you, you grow in it, you obey it. Well, God gives you a, a, a growing sense of being able to tr discern truth from error. And then be determined. So first, be discerning. Second, be determined to grow in commitment to guard this faith. It's not up to Lance or myself or you name the elders. We certainly play a part in it, but you are too. This is a group thing. The repository of truth, the church is supposed to be, the pillar and support of truth. That means all of us need to be part of that. 
And the last part is be a discipler in the sense of thinking about the next generation. Take what you learn and help them grow. There's different ways you can help them do that. But here's the deal. The The reason I say that is that as you are active in discipling somebody, guess what happens to your knowledge of the word? It goes up. And your compassion for the, those who are younger in the faith, your compassion grows because you know the younger they are in the faith, the easier it is for them to be deceived. And you learn to care for people more. So that's my, that's my challenge for us all. Amen? All right, so let's uh, pray and then we'll head back for a good, good time of praying that God would have his way in this church through his word uh, for his glory. Amen? So let me pray. Lord, thank you for uh, what we have in, in this uh, just in, in this letter, this short letter that just takes us all over your word. And Lord, may we feel the force and not lose the impact because we're uh, uh, safe and comfortable to some degree. To, compared to the rest of the world, we are fat and happy. But Lord, let us not be that way spiritually. Grow in us a commitment, a boldness, a courage, one filled with mercy and, and grace for sure. But Lord, help us to love you and your truth more and more. So God, thank you for tonight. And uh, we pray now that as we pray, as we corporately pray, Lord, that you would be lifted up and exalted. And Lord, that we would, uh, that we would see you work in us in even mightier ways. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.